Today I'm going to discuss the three branches of government and why our governor here in Washington state has so much power. I've been asked like how can our governor do this during the coronavirus? Why can he willy-nilly move the dials, the metrics, the mandates, and so on. How did he end up with so much power? And what gives him the authority to do this? So in order to answer that question, I'm going to go back and start with the three branches of government. I'm going to build a case of the three branches of government and how we got to this point here in our state. So the United States was founded on three separate branches of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, three separate powers to act as checks and balances one to the other. These three branches of government are given to us by the Constitution, which outlines the separation of powers between these three branches of government. But in the Federalist Papers, which are a series of documents that were written in 1787 and 1788, the Federalist Papers clearly outlined a lot of the intent that the founders had when it came to putting together the Constitution. In Federalist Number 51, an essay by James Madison, it was published in 1788, and it, and it addresses the means by which appropriate checks and balances can be created in a government under a constitution, and it advocated for a separation of powers within a national government. In creating this system, Madison's idea was that the politicians and the individuals that were elected to offices, both big and small in the U.S., would have desires and ideas that they were passionate about and that they wanted to enact into law. So the founders decided that the workable solution to ensure that laws and strong ideas were not enacted by a small group of partisan individuals was to use a federalist system where each of the three levels of government had the authority to impact legislation proposed by the other branches. He also emphasized in Federalist 51 that although the branches were meant to have checks and balances, the branches would only function to their fullest extent if they were independent of one another. So if they were independent of one another, the branches would be able to focus on the purpose and the system of checks and balances. These checks and balances would only need to come into play if disagreements and issues arose within the three branches. This is the Federalist paper where he famously wrote, If Men Were Angels, and this was meant to imply that not everyone has the common good in mind as the motivation for their desired action. So he recognized that men and women were inherently not good and selfish in nature and usually do not act out of the common good. And so the founders, in order to put this into the Constitution and realizing this amongst human nature, they split the powers of government into three separate branches. So first is the executive branch. And the executive branch carries out and enforces laws. Nationally, it includes the president, the vice president, the cabinet, executive departments, independent agencies, and other boards, commissions, and committees. And on the state level, this is the governor who is largely in charge of those same entities. So for the executive branch, think of the president or governor. And then under him or her, you have thousands of appointed bureaucrats and agency people. This is why it is so important who the president or governor is, because even though they're only one person, they appoint thousands of people into many state agencies and branches of the government, and these people effectively run the government, and we never really know who these people are or what they're doing because there's so many of them. 
They're buried in state agencies. They're buried in national agencies. And they cannot be held accountable by the power of the people who vote because they are appointed. Thus, it's really important who the president or governor is because this person sets the direction of the country and the state because of their appointment power. In our state here in Washington, he appoints citizens to about 230 boards and commissions, which totals approximately 1,500 people. And to date, our Governor Inslee has appointed approximately 120 judges to the state court system. And over his two terms in office, he's appointed 72 superior court judges, one and a half times the number of all judges who were appointed by previous governors and remain on the bench. So whoever the executive is, is a very big deal. The second branch of government is the legislative branch. And this branch of government makes laws. At the national level, the legislative branch is made up of the House and the Senate, collectively known as Congress. And among other powers, the legislative branch makes the laws. They have the power to declare war. They regulate interstate and foreign commerce. So commerce between the states and then commerce that we do internationally. And the federal legislative branch controls taxing and spending policies. And this branch of government also acts as a check against the executive branch, in theory, supposedly. So through passing of the federal laws and enforcing these laws that apply to the other branches of government, the legislative branch acts as part of a system of checks and balances supposedly because the three different branches of government are to be checks and balances to one another and spread the power equally. This also prevents abuses of power in theory, and the founders set this up as a protection to the citizens that were now forming this government over them. And the third branch of government is the judicial branch. This is the court system of local, state, and federal governments responsible for interpreting the laws that the legislature has passed And these laws are enforced by the executive branch. So the judicial branch interprets the law and is in charge of deciding the meaning of the laws and how to apply them to real situations. So nationally, in the judicial branch, we have the Supreme Court, which is nine judges, the Court of Appeals. There's 13 appellate courts in our nation that sits below the Supreme Court. And under that is the 12 regional circuits of regional courts, and there's 94 federal judicial districts under that. So it's quite extensive on the national level, and we have the same thing at the state level. We have a state Supreme Court, we have the Court of Appeals, and then we have the Superior Court system, which there's 186 judges in the Superior Court system in Washington State, Moving up, there's 22 judges in the Court of Appeals, and up from that, there's nine judges on the Washington State Supreme Court. And the Washington State Supreme Court building sits across from the legislative building in Olympia. So those are the three branches of government. Jay Inslee is given mandates regarding mask wearing and all sorts of stuff that he's done during our government's reaction to the COVID virus. And a law and a mandate have the same power to be enforced, but the only difference is how they came to be. So a law originates out of the legislative branch and a mandate is given to a state or a jurisdiction by a governor or the executive branch. The law has to be passed by the Senate and the House of Representatives and signed by the governor. A mandate can come straight out of the governor's office with no oversight by the legislature. And the reason that mandates exist is the legislature 
has given this power to the executive branch in order to respond to emergencies. And these mandates are enforceable by health officers and police. And that's why we've seen here in Washington State, different law enforcement jurisdictions have said they will will or will not enforce this mask mandate. And if they're not going to enforce it, they usually cite budget reasons and they simply don't have enough law enforcement officers to do so and say they need to be focusing on real crime, not something minor like wearing a mask and enforcing a mask mandate. So here in Washington state, our governor has broad powers with no oversight or approval needed from the state legislature, which is supposed to provide the check and balance system to the executive of our state. Understanding these three separate branches of government, what's happened here in Washington state started in about 1969, and the legislature gave the governor sweeping authority to take charge in times of crisis. And when the legislature did this back in the late 60s, the reasoning was their idea of an emergency was a natural disaster or a major power outage, an act of war, an act of terrorism. I don't think they ever thought that a time of crisis and emergency would be a sickness. They probably didn't consider the threat of a deadly disease, nor the data and science on which to base their decisions would be so willy-nilly. It began when the legislature surrendered a lot of their oversight of the executive in times of an emergency. That's why Jay Inslee keeps saying there's an emergency, because that gives him legal basis to stand on to deliver these mandates. These powers in, in emergency are quite broad. And it's really a catch-all that grant the governor sweeping authority to prohibit actions in an effort to preserve life and health and to suspend laws that hinder emergency response. And so I think that was the original intent, that it was to allow the governor to act quickly and not wait for legislative oversight or legislative approval to do what he needed to do. But it's obviously been very abused. And so that was 1969 when, when I believe these constitutional rights of the citizens began to erode. But in 2008, the legislature unanimously passed a Senate bill which identified specific obligations that could be suspended in an emergency. And this further broadened the governor's ability to declare an emergency and loosened up the definition of what an emergency is. In this 2008 bill, which is Senate Bill 6950, and in the show notes, I'll have a lot of detail about the bills I'm referring to and different articles I've referenced for this podcast. But in this Senate Bill 6950 in 2007-2008, much of this bill dealt with laws and requirements according to electrical codes, electrical providers, utility and transportation regulation, and it was done so you can tell they're talking about the emergency of a flood. So it was clearly addressing an emergency that affected the electrical power supply, roads, highways, and transportation and communication systems in the state. So the wording of the bill was broad to cover all these different scenarios, but undefined. And now that the governor can apply it to any emergency, he's taking a broad approach to what an emergency is And he's able to define what an emergency is and isn't because of the vague wording from this bill. The Washington state governor has more power than governors in nearly every other state. 
he has a sole authority to decide when an emergency exists and when it ends. Other states have put into their constitution, into their laws, that they must be involved, that the legislatures must be involved at some point deciding when an emergency exists and when it ends. But Vermont, Washington, Ohio, and Hawaii are among the worst ranking states because we give our governors the sole authority to determine when and where an emergency exists and when it ceases to exist. Now, of course, there's a critical need to ensure government mechanisms can respond quickly and effectively to emergencies, but state law should set the boundaries of this authority, and it's been eroded for decades in our state. The separation of powers between co-equal branches of government is paramount, and as the American founders warned us, the concentration of power in any one of these three branches would certainly bend towards tyranny and move towards tyranny. That's why they set up the three branches of government, to protect us from the tyranny that they saw in Great Britain, and why the founders wanted to make sure that there was no inherent power in any one of the three branches. And so now the governor can do, by emergency order, any willy-nilly determination on what is an emergency, and the legislature has no oversight. That's why, as session has been ticking on here in our state, they have a great outcry of wanting the legislature to do something about this. Well, what they're trying to do is take back some of the power that's been handed to the governor over the last couple of decades. And because there's Democrat majority in both the House and the Senate here in Washington state, that's not going to happen because they're not going to let the governor have any less power because he is the same party that holds the majority in our legislature. And I want to say, too, that this is part of the tyranny that our founders warned against, that this random and ever-changing moving of the goals and the part of the plan to keep the citizens in chaos and fear. And this is how tyrants rule. So now that our governor has so much power, we as the citizens are having to beg for our freedom back that we're going to have to, you know, beg and plead and, oh, please, you know, please follow the science and then see all this on social media and all over. Well, the science says this and the data says this, and he's not checking with the data with the hospitals and the hospitals say that they're not overrun and they're only, I know in Pierce County, they're only at 5% capacity. The hospitals are assuring the county officials that, no, we're doing fine. We're not overrun. And so there's nothing to really press this governor to open the state because the science he's using, I say science loosely, quote unquote, science is anything he wishes. There's no even consensus on what science they're using, what data they're using. And when the governor makes these decisions, he doesn't roll out the data along with it to prove his point. He doesn't need to. He already has this tyrannical power and the state legislature through decades has really neutered themselves and take and given him this power that he is now using. And isn't it interesting that now that there's a gene therapy injection that many people in our state are lining up to get, that that was supposed to ease our fears and allow us to get back to normal? Well, that's not the point. The whole purpose of a tyrannical government is to keep the population alarmed, in fear, under subjection, and constantly off balance. Even the rollout of this gene therapy injection is supposed to ease our fears. Well, it hasn't changed a thing. We're still under the heavy hand of a governor who has too much power. This has been a slow erosion of our constitutional rights that the founders put in place to protect us 
from the government having too much power over a free citizenry. And these rights have been eroded over time. So now we here we are with a governor that is out of control with no oversight from the other two branches of government. So what is the answer? What is the solution? Like I've said in previous podcasts, we must not be silent. We must make noise, speak up when we have the opportunity, and contact those who hold elected positions and let your voice be heard. Silence is agreement, and if you're silent on these important issues, those in power are given more power because there's no pushback to do whatever they wish. But if we speak up and let our voices be heard, we can influence those around us and we can hold the line and make a difference. And isn't it interesting to note that during his dials and metrics and phases and so on that the governor has proposed to work through this COVID-19 issue, that he hasn't ever set data points for the future, like what infection rate or hospital occupancy level will determine phase four or will determine when this is over. There's no mention of that. He's making decisions on his own, changing the metrics, the dials, the relying on science that he doesn't roll out at the same time he makes these different decrees. There's no regard or financial impact noted on the people that he allegedly is serving or protecting. And he has no comment on when we would return to normalcy. He's effectively a one-man rule. And why is this? Because even if the Republicans who are in the House and Senate make noise and bring forth bills and try and get some action to move us further along on the phasing schedule. They're in the minority. He has no constitutional or legislative reason to even listen to them. And Democrat legislators are unwilling to take this up because he is their party. So let me wrap up this podcast by saying, what can we do? What is the call to action? Is what I've said all along. Attend school board meetings. Contact your legislators through emails and phone calls. It's time to speak up. When there's a bill, an incident, an issue, a topic of concern that you have, in order to preserve our freedoms and liberties, to preserve the First Amendment to the Constitution, to speak and assemble, to preserve the Second Amendment to the Constitution, the right to keep and bear arms, we must speak up and preserve this every year. And as I talked about in an earlier podcast, asking if this was your this past year was your wake-up year. If it has been, it's time to do something, and that something is to speak up. So many times as we were out and about, and we've talked to thousands of people through the years when my husband was in the legislature, people would come to him and be discouraged and think, can I just make a difference? I'm only one voice. Does it really matter if I speak up? Does it really matter if I contact my legislator? Does it really matter if I say anything? It just seems like it doesn't matter. And he would encourage them to find a like group of people that had the same desires and goals that they would have and to band together. There's trade associations, there's a chamber of commerce, there's all sorts of groups. Oh my goodness, every group under the sun has an association. Join that association with other people and begin to speak. The other thing I'd like to say is this is exactly the lie of the left. They want you to believe that your voice doesn't matter. They want you to be quiet, go home, and don't say anything. Well, they're not. They're out in force saying all sorts of things that offend us daily. And they don't give a second thought about staying home and being quiet. 
They want you to think that your voice doesn't matter no matter how little or how much you speak. So why even try? And so many people have bought this lie, the lie that your voice doesn't matter. Over the thousands of bills that are introduced each year in Olympia, most never even have one person comment on them. Legislators, except for their colleagues, have no input from the citizens on what they think about the thousands of bills that appear before the legislature. The silence from the constituency is staggering. So the lie that your voice doesn't matter is exactly that. It's a lie. Your legislators, the city council, the county council, the school boards, they need to hear from you. They were elected to represent you, and it matters that you say something. The other thing I'd like to address about this issue is if one voice matters is there was a story that my husband would tell to the people who frequently came to him and asked this very question, does my voice matter? And the story goes that there was a boy walking along the beach and the tide had gone way out, and he noticed that thousands of starfish were stranded on the rocks, and the sun was out, and the starfish were dying, and the starfish were drying out in the hot sun, and some of them were dying, and many of these starfish would die before the tide came back in because it was such a hot day. And so realizing this, the boy began to pick up starfish one by one and throw them back into the ocean, and he would walk along the beach and along the rocks, see, see these thousands of starfish, and he would pick them up one by one and throw them back in the ocean to save their lives. And then a man came along and saw the boy, what the boy was doing and said, why are you doing that? There's thousands of starfish here and there's no way you're going to save them. Why waste your effort to throw a few back into the ocean? There's way too many. You'll never save them all. And then the boy held up a starfish and says, well, it matters to this one. And he threw it back into the ocean. And he picked another one up and he said, well, it matters to this one. And he threw it back into the ocean. So the boy saved hundreds of starfish that day. And I think that he had the right approach to the problem. He realized that there's no way he was going to solve the huge, enormous problem of thousands of starfish dying. But in that time on the beach, he could save hundreds of them. So he didn't just walk away and shrug his shoulders and say, there's nothing I could do. He did what he could that day. And this is exactly what I think that we should do and how we should approach the problems in our culture is no, we're never going to solve the whole thing, but we can certainly influence the 10 or 20 or 100 people around us and make an impact on their lives and speak out. So I hope that helps you understand the three branches of government, how Inslee has so much power and what you can do about it. It's time to speak up. Many thanks to Julie Barrett, founder of the Conservative Ladies of Washington, for her support, inspiration, and guidance in starting this podcast, and to my producer, Brendan Anderson.